word of the living God. I'll ask our brother Jeff to bring the word of God to us, please. Well, it's good to be here tonight. I uh, wasn't able to be here this morning, and so it's a blessing to be able to reconnect with my church family tonight. Starting in 1 Peter 1.13 through 2.12, Peter's going to turn his attention from hopeful living that we looked at last time to holy living. And I've divided this portion of Scripture up into three sections. Uh, chapter 1.13 to 21 that we'll be looking at tonight I've called holy components or elements. Next time we'll look at 1 Peter 1, 22 to 2.3, holy conduct. And then thirdly, 2.4 to 12, holy construction. That's an interesting title. We'll have to wait and see what that's all about until we get there. But today, as I said, we're going to be looking at the first section only, verses 13 to 21, holy components. And as we begin in, in chapter... Uh, or sorry, verse 13, we see the word therefore, which refers back to verses 3 to 12. And last time we broke these, that section down into four main points. The first from verses 3 to 5 was hope that is secure. Our salvation in Christ is absolutely secure. This is our living hope. How do we know? Because as we discovered last time, it's all of God. It comes from God's boundless mercy. It was initiated by God. It is he who caused us to be born again. Its foundation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, proving that God's wrath was fully appeased and satisfied by the death of Christ. It's our inheritance, which is God himself, and all that is Christ, and it will never change or deteriorate, and it's kept or reserved in heaven for us. And it's guarded by God's abundant, eternal, mighty, divine, and great power. Our salvation could not be more secure. Next, we looked at hope that is tested from verses 6 and 7. The genuineness of our faith is going to be tested. The implications of 1 Peter 1.7 together with James 1.3 is that the trials test the trustworthiness of our faith. Peter compares our trials to the purification of gold by fire. Now, being subjected to fire is a very fearful thing, not to mention a painful experience. The purpose, though, is to purify, or in the context of what Peter is saying, it is to expose the genuineness or trustworthiness of our faith. When we've gone through that trial, 1 Peter 4.12 says, calls it a fiery trial, and our faith is found to be genuine and trustworthy, the result is praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we noted last time that this praise and glory and honor will be directed toward the believer. So then our trials are intended to refine our faith, much like fire refines gold. And we learn from James 1.3 that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And other words that could be substituted for steadfastness are, are, are consistency or endurance. Thirdly, last time we looked at verses 8 and 9, and we call that hope that is unseen. And here we looked at 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. 
And as we go through trials, Paul is exhorting us to not look at the things that are seen, like the trials themselves. For they are transient, that is, brief or temporary. Rather, Paul says, look to the things that are unseen, for they are eternal. In 1 Peter 1.8, Peter boldly asserts, though you have not seen him, talking of Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. How can Peter know this? How did he not know his readers were not going to be like Thomas in John 20, who wouldn't believe uh, that Jesus had been resurrected until he saw him? How did they know that? Well, he knows because the genuineness of their faith has been tested and found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our trials have tested the genuineness and trustworthiness of our faith and have produced in us steadfastness, consistency, and endurance so that we love and believe in Christ even though we cannot physically or literally see him. The result is joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What is the outcome? Peter says in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And lastly, last time, we, from verses 10 to 12, we called that hope that is fulfilled. The prophets who prophesied the coming of Christ under the inspiration of the Spirit of God did not fully understand the message that they were recording for us in the Old Testament. They saw only snippets, but they're not able to put it all together. With intensity, they diligently investigated to understand the facts of the message. And in spite of their diligent efforts, they were unable to determine, they're only able to determine that the message was not for them to fully understand, but for those who would follow and have the good news preached to them. However, all that the prophets foretold was perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Now in verse 13, Peter says, therefore, therefore, because of all that I've just said, I'm just going to read verses 13 to 21 once again. Please follow along as I read. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So I've broken this message down into three components or elements of holy living. The standard for holy living, the sacrifice for holy living, and the source for holy living. So that's the standard for holy living, 
the sacrifice for holy living, and the source for holy living. So the first element of holy living we will consider is the standard of holy living. How can we know what holy living looks like without first establishing the standard of holiness to live by? This is exactly where Peter begins. Verses 13 to 16, once again, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In verse 13, Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Now, the word mind here is referring to a way of thinking or feeling. For example, in Colossians 1.21, uses the same word when it says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So hostile in mind is a way of thinking. Notice in Colossians 1.21 that this way of thinking led to evil deeds. Now, don't miss the connection here between what we dwell on in our minds and the resulting actions or behavior. And I'm going to bring this up several times tonight. I really want to make that point. So how do we prepare our minds for action? So for this, we're going to go to the Apostle Paul just for a moment to get some guidance. And from Romans 8, 5 to 8, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So notice the connection here between where the mind is set and how it plays out in one's life. To set the mind on the flesh results in living according to the flesh, hostility toward God, inability to please God, and ultimately death. To set the mind on the spirit results in living according to the spirit, which brings life and peace. Listen to the very familiar verse, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here the renewing of one's mind, which comes by the word of God, results in a transformed life and discerning the will of God. And finally, another very familiar verse, Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Here Paul is talking about a disciplined mind. In Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So we prepare our minds for action by focusing, focusing them on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. 
We do this by transforming our minds in God's truth, his word, and by having disciplined minds in regard to the things we think about and meditate on. Now back in verse 13 it says, and being sober-minded. This is talking about a presence of mind, like having one's wits about them or faculties about them. It's calm and circumspect. This is the opposite of irrational. So having our minds disciplined and focused on God's truth, being calm and circumspect, Peter says at the end of verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the living hope that we talked about from back in verse 3. This is not some irrational hope of one who's out of their mind. This is a hope of one who has their faculties about them, one who has presence of mind. In verse 13, the grace that will be brought to you is our salvation to be fully realized at the revelation of Jesus Christ when, according to 2 Thessalonians 1.7, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his holy angels. Brethren, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. This is the living hope of our salvation that we have in Christ that will be realized when he returns. Now, Peter goes on in verse 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, the word therefore in verse 13 applies to this verse as well. Therefore, or since God has caused you to be born again to a living hope, verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, also verse 3, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and kept in heaven for us, verse 4, And since our salvation is being guarded by God's abundant, eternal, mighty, divine, and great power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, verse 5, as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, verse 14. So what are the passions of our former ignorance? Well, Colossians 3, 5 says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and idolatry. Colossians 3.8 says, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 1 Peter 4.3 says, Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawlessness. You get the idea. The passions of our former ignorance were what characterized our lives before we were new creatures in Christ. Our lives should be different now. How? Well, this brings us to verse 15, verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Everything that we've said so far has led up to these two verses. If our conduct is going to be holy, holy, first we have to prepare our minds for action. Be sober-minded and set our hope fully on the grace that would be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ then we need to not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. But even more importantly, if our conduct is going to be holy, 
we have to recognize the standard for holy living. Who is that standard? It's the one who called us, God. As God is holy, we are to be holy in all our conduct. Now, volumes and volumes have been written about the holiness of God, and it's certainly not a topic that we're going to have time to get into in a lot of detail tonight. However, consider with me this quotation from Charles Hodge. He said, The holiness of God is not to be conceived as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of God's consummate perfection and total glory. It is his infinite moral perfection, crowning his infinite intelligence and power. And then to this, John MacArthur adds, he said it is infinite moral perfection as the crown of the Godhead. Holiness is God's total glory, crowned. Now, holy means to set apart for a special purpose. For the believer, this means to be set apart by or for God. The idea is for the believer to have a likeness of nature with God. Now, R.C. Sproul expands on this idea of set apart. This is a very helpful quotation. Sproul says, God's holiness is more than just separateness. His holiness is also transcendent. The word transcendence means literally to climb across. It is defined as exceeding usual limits. To transcend is to rise above something, to go above and beyond a certain limit. When we speak of the transcendence of God, we are talking about the sense in which God is above and beyond us. Transcendence describes his supreme and absolute greatness. The word is used to describe God's relationship with the world. He is higher than the world. He has absolute power over the world. The world has no power over him. Transcendence describes God in his consuming majesty, his exalted loftiness. It points to the infinite distance that separates him from every creature. He is an infinite cut above everything else. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. Wow. This is our standard of holiness. Now Peter quotes Leviticus 11.44 when he says in verse 16, You shall be holy for I am holy. How can we possibly be holy in the sense that God is holy? The short answer is, we cannot. We as finite human beings do not possess the transcendence of God, and we never will. Now, there are two aspects of our holiness that we must consider here. Positional holiness and practical holiness. Let me say that again. Positional holiness and practical holiness. First, what is positional holiness? Well, one of our favorite verses around here is Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
He chose, when God chose us, that is the elect, before the foundation of the world, it was before any had opportunity to do anything, good or bad, holy or unholy. Why did God choose us? Well, Ephesians 1.4 says that we should be holy and blameless before him. Colossians 1.21 and 22, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, that is Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Because of what Christ has done, notice it does not say anything about works on our part. Because of what Christ has done, we are presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God. How is this made possible? How can this be? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was credited to Christ's account, and his righteousness was credited to our account. Another way of saying this is that our sin, our, our sin was imputed to Christ, and his righteousness was imputed to us. We've been declared righteous because of what Christ did on our behalf. So when God looks at us through the blood of Christ, he sees only Christ's righteousness. This is our positional holiness. If we're perfectly honest with ourselves, we know that our positional holiness is not lived out in our daily lives. That is, we are sinful creatures. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, 1 John 1.8. So this brings us to the discussion of practical holiness. Some prefer to call this progressive holiness, which is probably a better term. This is the process of sanctification. Now, Peter alludes to this in 2 Peter 2.2. He says, like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Growing up into salvation is describing the process of becoming more like Christ. This is the sanctification process. This is what Paul means when he says in Colossians 3.10, talking of our new self in Christ, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We see the same truth in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And all we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Same image as what? The Lord. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the process of being renewed from Colossians 3.10, of growing up into salvation, 1 Peter 2.2, or of being conformed to the image of Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is what I mean by progressive holiness. Notice what, first, what Peter says in verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Your conduct is referring to the manner of, our manner of life or behavior. The Greek word means from down to up. Figuratively, it talks of a change of our outward behavior from an upturn of inner beliefs. 
here's that connection again between what is in our mind or heart and our resulting behavior. You see how it all comes together now? If our conduct is going to be holy, first we have to prepare our minds for action, be sober-minded, set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then we need to not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. And in the, con- and in the context of preparing our minds for action, Colossians 1.9, in Colossians 1.9, Paul prayed, And so from the day you, we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The word fill in Colossians 1.9 means to make full or complete. The idea is to fill to the extent appropriate. Now, another aspect of this word we see in the New Testament is to fully possess, influence, control, take over. Paul is saying that They would be controlled by the knowledge of God's will. In other words, the knowledge of God's will would so fill their minds and their hearts that, in effect, it would control them. Again, at the risk of being super repetitive, I must emphasize the connection between our mind and behavior. What's the result of being filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? We find the answer if we keep reading into Colossians 1.10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So when our minds are filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, what's the result? To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is practical or progressive holiness. What we fill our minds with will directly impact our behavior. Do you want to grow in holiness? Then renew your minds with a constant diet of the word of God. Be faithful in sitting under the sound teaching of the word of God. Be in regular fellowship with those in Christ who are also growing in the knowledge of God's word. As we alluded to earlier, our holiness came with a cost. Not one of us could pay the cost ourselves, but only Christ could pay on our behalf. This brings us to my next point, the sacrifice of holy living. Please follow as I read verses 17 to 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each man's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Though our sin has been completely paid for by Christ, and as a result we have been declared holy and blameless before God, This does not give us license to live any way we want in this world. We'll not be judged for our sin. Christ took care of that. But we will still be judged according to our deeds. Now note that I'm not talking about salvation here. Let me be perfectly clear. Works or deeds play no part in our salvation. But note 2 Corinthians 5.10, where Paul, talking to believers, says, 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In Revelation 22.11, the Lord says to the Apostle John, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Then in the context of the evildoer, the filthy, the righteous, and the holy, Jesus says in the next verse, Revelation twenty two twelve, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And in Romans 14, 10 to 12, Paul says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. So then each of us, remember Paul's writing to believers, so then each of us will be given an account, will, will give an account of himself to God. So therefore, back in 1 Peter 1.17, Paul warns his readers that since the Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is a warning that we too would be prudent to follow, isn't it? Then in verses 18 and 19, Peter continues, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, we already talked about the futile ways inherited from our forefathers when we talked about the passions of our former ignorance, so we won't get into that again. The word ransomed here, also translated to redeem, is used only here in verse 18 in Luke 24:21 and in Titus 2:14. It's referring to the payment of a ransom. The idea of a payment is to restore something back to the to possession of its rightful owner. Another way of putting that is to rescue from the power and possession of an alien possessor. This is illustrated in Romans 6, verses 20 and 22. So Romans 6, 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And then moving to verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin, you have become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Once we were slaves to sin. A slave is the property or possession of his master. In this illustration, the master is sin. Paul says, but now you've been set free from sin. Well, how have we been set free from sin? Peter says we were ransomed. Well, what was the payment for our ransom given so that we would be slave, free from slavery to sin? Verse 18 says, well, it wasn't perishable things such as silver or gold. Verse 19, but it was the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The ransom or payment for our sins was the precious blood of Christ. This is the sacrifice for holy living. Without this payment to free us from the mastery of sin over us, 
There's no opportunity for holy living for us. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews explains why the payment of Christ's blood was sufficient to redeem us. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, talking about Christ, says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for his, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 10, 14, 10, or 12 to 14 continues, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, writing, waiting for, the time, for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He had no need to offer up a sacrifice for his own sin because he had no sin. Peter makes this very clear in 1 Peter 2.22. Therefore, his, his single sacrifice for sin was totally sufficient to perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, in regard to the phrase being sanctified from Hebrews 10.14, Albert Barnes makes a very helpful comment. He says, The doctrine taught in this verse is that those who are in any measure sanctified will be perfected forever. It is not a temporary work which has begun in their souls, but one which is designated to be carried forward to perfection. In the atonement made by the Redeemer, there is the foundation laid for their eternal perfection, and it was with reference to that that it was offered. So by the payment made by Christ with his own blood, we are positionally made holy before God, and from a practical standpoint, put on a path of progressive holiness, neither of which would be possible without that payment of Christ's blood to redeem us from sin. Well, this brings us to our final component of holy living that we'll be considering today, the source of holy living. Other words that could be substituted for source are the basis or foundation of holy living. And we find this in 1 Peter 1, 20 and 20 to 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him were believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He, in these verses, is referring to Christ. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Well, what does the phrase from the foundation of the world mean? The phrase is generally understood to mean before the creation or in eternity past. Earlier we quoted Ephesians 1.4, which said, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 2 Timothy 1.9 uses a different phrase, but essentially saying the same thing. Who saved us 
and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which has been given us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began is the same idea as before the foundation of the world. It's talking about eternity past. So even before creation, before man or anything that we know existed, God already knew that he would send Christ to die for us and to be raised from the dead. Now, I'm sure that many of you have heard people say things like, sin surprised God, so he had to come up with a plan to deal with it, plan B, if you will. This is not what the Bible teaches. There is no plan B. From eternity past, before man existed, before sin existed, God planned to send his son to pay the price for sin. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Peter said, who through him are believers in God. At the exact moment in time determined according to God's plan, Christ was sent to redeem us from our slavery to sin. He saved us and called us with a holy calling that through him we might become believers in God. Why did God do this? Well, Peter gives us two reasons in verse 21. First, to give glory to God. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he gave him glory. Secondly, Peter says, so that your faith and hope are in God. Before salvation, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2.12. God carrying out his plan for known before the foundation of the world for the sake of us who through Christ are believers in God, raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our faith and hope in God are the source of our holy living. Its foundation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his subsequent glory. Apart from this, we are separated from Christ. We have no hope and we're without God in this world. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing, John 15, 5. Apart from him and what he has done for us, there is no holy living. Paul beautifully sums up all that we've been talking about tonight in Romans 8, 12 to 17. I want you to listen very carefully as I read this. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be purified, or sorry, glorified with him. So in our discussion of holiness, 
we've seen the standard for holy living. God is our standard for holy living. The sacrifice of holy living. The sacrifice was the precious blood of Christ. And the source of holy living. Our faith and hope in God are the source of our holy living. Jesus said, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ and what he has done for us, there is no holy living. Well, I'd like to close tonight with God's exhortation to Joshua as an application of what we've been talking about tonight. In Joshua 1.8, it says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. This is preparing the minds for action. By meditating on God's word day and, uh, day and night, why? Joshua 1.8 continues, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Here again, is the clear connection between what we feed our minds with and the resulting behavior. Now the promise, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. This is the beginning of the road toward progressive holiness that will allow us to obey God's command, you shall be holy as I am holy, or for I am holy. Let's pray. Fathers, we meditate on your word tonight. And Lord, we take a moment to think about the transcendence of your holiness. How you as God is so high above us. And how your holiness is so high above us. And yet you've given us the command to be holy, for you are holy. But Father, we also recognize that there is not one command in the word of God that you have not enabled us through the power of your spirit to obey. Lord, you haven't given us your commands to frustrate us. You haven't given us your commands to intimidate us. You haven't given us your commands, Lord, so that we would feel like failures Lord, you have said to be holy as you are holy. And in your grace, you enable us to move in that direction. We recognize, Lord, that as sinful human beings, that, Father, though we've been set free from sin, though sin no longer has dominion over us, the fact is, Lord, that we continue to sin. Even as Paul lamented in Romans 7, how he did the very things that he did not want to do, and he did not do the things that he did want to do. And Lord, this is a, a challenge that we face every day. And yet, Lord, in your grace, fathers, we saturate our minds and our hearts in the truth of the word of God. Lord, as we sit under the teaching and preaching of faithful preachers of the word of God, Lord, as we fellowship together, as we sharpen one another, Lord, we can progress toward holiness. We can progress 
in the sanctification process, Lord, that began at the day of salvation. That, Lord, every day we can be just a little bit more like Christ, not because of us. Lord, we recognize, Lord, from the book of Philippians that you commanded us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So we recognize that we have work that we need to be doing. But we also recognize that it's in your power to will and to work according to your power that you do within us. And so, Father, we ask for your grace tonight. We ask, Lord, that you give us grace, Lord, to, to walk in obedience. Lord, I pray that you give us a love and a hunger for your word in the way that a baby hungers for his mother's milk. That, Father, we would progress and grow up into salvation, that we grow up to be more like Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you will enable this because you promised to complete which you began. We thank you for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.